0: Welcome to the PlayEd Podcast, where we explore cultivating connections through play.
1: Hello and welcome to the PlayEd Podcast. I am your host, Laura.
0: And I'm your host, Chris.
1: And today, I would like to welcome everybody. Um, Chris had a idea that he threw at me, and I'm not sure about it. So, throw it at me.
0: All right. Generally speaking, games tend to be classified as cooperative, you're working together to achieve your goal, or competitive, you're trying to win. Well, while this makes a lot of intuitive sense to people, conceptually, it's it's an invalid dichotomy. It's It's not really a true distinction. Okay. All games are by nature cooperative.
1: All righty. So you're you're gonna have to explain that.
0: One. Okay. So all games have rules. All the players have to agree to abide by the rules. In that sense, they have to cooperate to play the same game. Okay. Whether it's a sport or a board game or a card game or whatever. If I sit down with a table with people and I want to play blackjack and they want to play poker, we don't have a game going on. We all have to agree we're gonna play poker, even okay. though. We're going to be competing against each other. We have to cooperate on the type of game we're playing. Okay. We have to cooperate on what kind of stakes we're going to play for.
1: All right.
0: Um, the chess tournament our, our kids went to this weekend. Yeah. Our boys prefer to play for fun. They're not rated. They're not ranked. They don't want to be. A lot of the other kids there are about the same. There are a few who are clearly being groomed for competition. There was one little four-year-old. Four years old swept the room. Didn't take one of the trophies, but for a four-year-old to hold his own um, at a chess tournament of kids 10 years older, that was really, really impressive. Okay. So where I'm going with this is that there is always going to be an element of competition in any game, no matter how cooperative, and there are elements of cooperation necessary for any game, no matter how competitive. Okay. Okay. Athletes need to agree they're playing the same, you know, if you're playing football, you're playing baseball. There are rules about how to advance the ball, how to field the ball, how to score. There are referees and judges and umpires. Okay. You find the same thing in board games. Where we get confused is that there are some people, and I had to deal with this growing up, who don't like competition and don't like games that encourage competition, who think that winning or losing causes hurt feelings, low self-esteem, etc. And so one approach to that is to try and create games that have no winning conditions. Okay. There was a game that was popular in the 1980s. I had to deal with it. Um, it was one of the few games that we tried playing in my own house called the Ungame, U N G A M E. I don't know if it's still in production. Um, there'll be, the, I've found articles on it um, online, so we can at least, at the very least, put a link to that in the show notes. But the whole premise of the game is that the players had to work together, but there was really no way to win. It was meant to be the antithesis of a game where game is defined as a competitive endeavor that players engage in, where take Monopoly, for example. One player wins when all other players go bankrupt.
1: It still exists. It
0: still exists. It
1: still exists. Yes. I think I've had a similar idea within the sports. I had some kind of night where we were supposed to like show up for a youth group type function. And they were having... Volley- this is back
0: when you were a teenager? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Okay.
1: And they were doing volleyball. But the rule was you weren't allowed to keep score. What on earth was the point of hitting the ball back and forth if there's... You're just hitting the ball back and forth.
0: Trying to have fun and keep a volley going, I guess?
1: Well, at that point, you have had to come up with some different winning condition.
0: Because you need a winning condition in order to play a game. Yeah. Even if the winning condition is just we both had fun.
1: Yes. And so, I think by this argument, Calvin Ball, even, from the Calvin and Hobbes comic...
0: All right, you're going to have to elaborate on that, because I know what you're talking about, but I'm willing to bet that some folks listening do not know what Calvin Ball is.
1: All right, so, Calvin and Hobbes is the comic strip that was drawn by Bill Waterston?
0: I believe so, but we need to double-check that. I'll
1: double-check and have it in the show notes. Um... It was a comic about a kid and his stuffed tiger who is usually portrayed as a perfectly big real life tiger because it was his imaginary friend. And they had a game called Calvin Ball. And the only rule was that there were no rules. And so... You could pretty much do anything at any time and declare that it was a rule of the game.
0: Interesting.
1: So by this, Chaotic. Very Chaotic. But you agreed that you were playing Calvin ball. And so, where something wouldn't be allowed because it was touch football or baseball or street, street hockey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I played so much street hockey when I lived in Philly.
1: In Calvin ball, you couldn't argue that it wasn't part of the game because you'd already decided you were playing Calvin ball.
0: S- yes. So, uh,. You know, going back to this kind of idea of the ungame and this this sort of movement against competition, there are other solutions to the problem. One of my favorites is a competitive game that requires cooperation to survive. And so, uh, for example, I know there's um, was a Forbidden Island that the kids played for a while. Um, and then there was also um, uh, Castle Panic. Our kids love playing Castle Panic. Even the little four-year-old can play Castle Panic because it, it's it's a it's a very simple tower defense game. Um, monsters are attacking the castle. All the players are in the castle, and if the castle falls, everybody loses. Mm-hmm. They have to work together against the structure of the game but within the rules, in order to trade amongst themselves the resources to try and fend off and defend the tower. Uh, I know tower defense games were really popular apps and, um, uh, uh, like, flash games, uh, web-based, browser-based flash games for a while. I don't know if they still are, but I know my kids love playing Castle Panic. And there are a couple of different varieties of it. It's all the same game, but with just different... um, Uh, Trade dress, different skins, um, uh, different kinds of monsters and so forth. But the idea is that here you help engender cooperative play by giving them a common enemy to fight against and fairly high stakes for loss. Another way of dealing with this is what you find in role-playing games. Whether it's an MMORPG online or, as we prefer to play, um, Tabletop. tabletop. Um, with pen and paper and physical dice, and, you know, we get a bunch of kids together. I typically have about 16 or 18 people around my table when I run a, a game of Dungeons and & Dragons, and it's mostly kids. There's a couple of extra parents who come to help out. A lot of the kids are special needs or uh, non-neurotypical. Um, they're all, the, and and they they grow in friendship as they learn to deal with the social interaction and work together in order to achieve a common objective. Uh Um, And so they learn to cooperate in service to their victory condition. Uh, And then they have to divide the loot among themselves, which is always entertaining. But those are alternative approaches to the idea that competition is always destructive. Um, Competition has its place. It's a necessary component of life. Um, and I think there are better solutions to the, the problem than than would be represented by something like the ungame.
1: So basically what you're saying is that you need to have a mix of, of the two.
0: All good games are going to be a mix of cooperative and competitive.
1: And to some degree, choosing which balance of them. I mean, if you're playing risk, you're playing competitively. Against the other players. Correct. And so what you're going to look at is it's a question of audience.
0: But if you're, say, playing Diplomacy, Mm -hmm. um, which is itself a a delightful game, someone's going to win. But you have to determine how much you're going to trust the other players and... um, to what extent are you going to fulfill your own commitments? And it's so it's it's got deeper layers of cooperation Okay. Uh, than you find with something like risk, where cooperation and risk tends to be ganging up on somebody who's in the lead.
1: And so it might be a temporary alliance. A right now, so and so across the board is dominating and stomping all of us. But if you and I work together, we can even get everyone back onto an even footing. But once everyone's on an even footing, no one is going to blame you if you then decide to try to race ahead and get your own world domination victory.
0: Right. Because the victory conditions of the game still recommend that one player win Mm -hmm. and the other players then fall behind um, either into second place, third place, etc. or are, are removed from the game entirely.
1: Okay. So basically when you're looking at playing the game that falls onto the more cooperative end of the scale where there's a competition, but the competition is not among the players, but between the players and some other obstacle, Mm -hmm. then that is a game that is going to offer the benefit that you don't have antagonism among the people playing, but you still have competition in the sense that there are victory conditions. There is something to strive for and a sense of knowing that you won.
0: Correct. Correct. Yes. That's what I'm trying to articulate.
1: Okay. And so what some people who don't like that player versus player competition for whatever reason, maybe it's because you're dealing with immature players. If you're dealing with younger children, it can be devastating if they keep losing Candyland because they're the youngest. Or they keep getting a bad spin of the wheel or roll of the dice. And so a game where they can participate and have the opportunity to win by working with everyone might be a better game to work with for them simply because it takes time to learn how to lose gracefully.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And as a parent, I need to choose and help shape the opportunities I give. Sometimes the opportunity is... Okay, you're going to lose, because that's what happens. Okay. Sometimes it's... Right, so if I'm going to teach my child chess, if I play straight, it's going to be a long time before they can beat me.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Just because we're working on, can you move the pieces correctly? Do you understand the one-touch rule? Can you castle correctly? But... I'm not competing against them. I'm trying to create opportunities to teach them.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so there are going to be tears. That is inevitable in any learning experience. Yes. You don't want to force those, but you also don't want to rig the game so that they never happen. I remember distinctly a moment as a child playing Monopoly with my grandmother. And it was the moment I realized she was not playing to win. Mm -hmm. She was playing to ensure that I won. Huh. And it it was a really disappointing moment because I realized that all the games of Monopoly I'd won up to that point, I was probably only about five or six years old. I mean, I barely understood how to play Monopoly at that point. All of those games that I had won, I hadn't really won
1: so victory is devalued when you haven't worked for it
0: yes absolutely part of the joy of victory is overcoming the obstacle by luck skill um, hard work hard work mastery of of the material um, when I w- when I was in middle school um, we had a group of us who would play chess every day at lunch and when I started I got my butt kicked every single day. I was mature enough not to throw a tantrum, but it was still really frustrating. And I remember talking to my parents about it. I remember talking to my my co- my um uh homeroom teacher, mentor, um one one of one of my teachers at school who was who was Kind of like my advisor. He's my my advisor. I think is what he, what he, what he was called. Um, and they all basically said the same thing. Well, if you want to get better, then keep playing all these people who keep beating you, but start trying to figure out why they're beating you, how they're beating you. Talk to them. And so and and then they also recommended that I read books on how to play better chess. And so I got books out of the library and I read them. This was before the internet. Um, now you can, I, I was looking the other day for one of my kids and there's hundreds of videos on YouTube on how to teach kids to play better chess. Um, there's whole step programs that you can get for the computer where it's like, it's a computer chess game, but it's also got a grand tutorial to help you learn how to play at a grandmaster level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of thing. Anyway, I was, you know, this was pre-internet, so I got some books out of the library. Um, I remember Bobby Fisher teaches chess, specifically. I don't remember that one being very helpful, but I do remember that book. Um, and I started to get a little better. Mm-hmm. And then I won about as many games as I lost, so I had kind of a 50-50 win rate. And then I never got good enough to dominate but i could hold my own and then when i played other people as i got into high school i was actually a halfway decent chess player
1: and so in that case the disappointment of the competition and losing once you got past the the understandable pain that comes from losing was that it inspired you to say can i do better
0: absolutely Absolutely. And so I think that's, as a, as a parent, that's one of the things I'm always conscious of when I'm running games or teaching games to my kids, other people's kids, is that how am I, how, what what am I teaching this child through this game interaction?
1: And that tells you to some degree what type of game you want to choose to play. That if you're going to choose a game where there's a clear winner and a clear loser among the players that there ought to be something in the way you present it that allows them to take those losses as a learning moment.
0: I know that if I'm going to teach a four or five year old checkers or chess there will be tears. Yes. That's unavoidable. And it's not a bad thing because what you learn from that is the same thing you learn from you know, skinning your knees when you're learning to run or When you're learning to ride a bike, you get back up, you do it again, you get better at it. That's a really valuable lesson to learn over a chessboard at the age of four or five. Mm -hmm. Because I've met 40 and 50 year olds who haven't learned that lesson. And that's really sad to see adults who are basket cases because no one taught them that when life knocks you down, you get back up, you get back on the bike You sit down at the chessboard again, and you just keep trying. That that perseverance as a character trait can be imparted through playing sports, playing games. Playing
1: things particularly with a competitive aspect. Yes. Because if you can lose, that can spur you to persevere and learn how to win.
0: Right. Now, you know, when I'm teaching my my kids chess I'm not sitting there just beating them in game after game after game after game and they're hopeless we walk through hey let's set the board up let's make sure we're moving the pieces correctly once we get past piece movement then I start getting into so why did you move that piece did you see this piece over here that was threatening pieces you value okay Um, one thing that a lot of people do when they start playing chess, and I've seen it in other games, I've seen it in, um, I've seen it in business,
1: Uh
0: is people playing to not lose. Okay. As opposed to being willing to win. To win, you have to take risks. To love, you have to take risks. Okay, that's how
1: I played risk.
0: You played to not lose. Yes. And that's why you lost. Yes. Because someone else was willing to win. And they were willing to take the risks to win.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people who find themselves in a position where they conceptually don't like playing a competitive game as they think of it is because they don't like the experience of losing. And they don't find that that spurs them to try to figure out the game enough to want to win. Right. And so all they'll do is they're probably playing because someone else wanted to. And they'll play to not lose and inevitably lose because of that.
0: Right. Right.
1: And so you have a a negative reinforcement cycle where you play a game, you didn't enjoy it, and then you get in this mind that you don't like competitive games because it makes people feel bad. And what you miss is Mm -hmm. that sometimes the feeling bad is a starting point, not an ending point.
0: Correct. Correct.
1: Now, from the standpoint of a mom who has to deal with probably a larger proportion of the tantrums than you do.
0: Almost certainly.
1: Because I am home most of the time, and you do still leave the house for work. Um, I find that the games like Castle Panic, where you have that cooperative aspect, are much better ones to pull out when I can't be playing with them.
0: Right, right. And, And that's a really good point to make, that different games can be played with groups of kids... Depending on the amount of parental involvement, mm-hmm. so if I'm going to pull out one of our GMT games, um, let's say we pull out Pericles, or we pull out
1: Pericles is a little bit far fetched. We're still having trouble figuring. Well, that out. Well,
0: yeah, that's true. I, I, I yes. Um,
1: Perhaps dominant species.
0: Yeah, okay, so Dominant Species is a great example. Dominant Species by GMT Games is a, a I mean, it's a war, it's, it is an award-winning game. It's one of their best-selling games, very family-friendly game. Uh, the premise is you are some type of creature um, right before um, an ice age, um, trying to uh, propagate yourself over the planet and survive the coming ice age. So, ordinarily, it's expected that you would be a teenager or older. There's some fairly complicated vocabulary. It's it's not necessarily the most intuitive gameplay. There are a lot of steps in each game turn's phases. Um, and And the strategy of the game does involve some fairly comprehensive thinking ahead, dealing with scarcity of resources, Um, There are elements of competition, although it is fairly hard to eliminate another player. It's not impossible. All that to say, we have our four-year-old joining us when we as a family play dominant species because the adults, my wife and, and me, and our older children will help the youngers who can't read to understand what do these cards do. What turn are we on? What actions are they allowed? And so there's a collaborative atmosphere, even as we're all vying to win. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think
1: sometimes our winning condition is, did we make it through a full turn?
0: Oh, yeah. For for games like Dominant Species, absolutely. Uh, our winning condition for Pericles is going to be, can we figure out how to set up the board? Um, so... You know, and and it really kind of depends on the game. You can adapt any game if you bring enough of a collaborative mindset to it.
1: Which sort of brings us back full circle to where you started, which is that every game is cooperative.
0: As well as, it's cooperative and collaborative, and it's competitive. It's got to have a victory condition, or it really isn't a game. Without a victory condition, it really is just play. Mm-hmm. And there's
1: nothing wrong with playing, but if you're, but if you're saying that you're playing a game, there's got to be something about it that is that gives it a sense of structure and a thing of if we do this we win and if we do this we do not.
0: And I mean watching our boys out in the yard the other night playing hide and go seek and freeze tag was a lot of fun. They didn't really have a victory condition. They weren't coop that they were cooperating. And they were collaborating, and it was competitive, but mostly they were just giggling. Mm -hmm. And everything they did led to more giggles, and they had lots of fun. And that's valuable. That's a good memory they're going to have. Yeah. And so figuring out what you want as a parent and then being open to letting things develop once you set up the pieces... Whatever setting up the pieces ends up meaning for the particular game you're playing.
1: And so it starts with looking at the game and saying, what kind of game is this? What are we trying to get out of it? Is this the kind of game where I'm going to need to manage everyone's emotions and responses and recognize that I'm here to recognize that when my four-year-old loses, I have to help them through their tantrum as they're upset, and then I have to help them get that recognition point that says, okay, tell me what happened in the game. Do you think you could have done something different here? And sometimes it's that knowledge to say, we need a game that everyone can just sit back and have fun with. Right. And we'll all work together. And so we're going to pull out one where we're going to continue fighting, defending our castle together against the oncoming hordes of goblins. And you're going to recognize that you can let the kids play that. And it probably won't end up with board pieces being flung across the room because they are not getting upset with each other.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. All, all games are by nature cooperative. Have cooperative elements and competitive elements. What makes a game seem more cooperative or competitive really boils down to the emphasis of the game design. And what the players collaboratively agree they want to do when they sit down to play that game.
1: Mm-hmm. So before we wrap up, the one thing I wanted to know is can you think of with your chess example of what is one thing that you can do to take it merely from dad beating his son at a game of chess once again, or daughter, we do have one, Um <laughs> And move it into that realm of more cooperative play.
0: What I do is, as we're playing casually at home, is as they go to make a move, I'll ask, are you sure that's the move you want to make? And I'll ask them to explain why they're going to move a piece and what they expect to happen. And, And then we'll let them move the piece and I'll capture the piece, or capture a more valuable piece, or whatever. And then we'll discuss that, and then we'll rewind. You only move one or two steps ahead. It can make for a painfully slow game. You're not trying to get to the end of the game. You're not trying to checkmate the child. You're trying to give them the opportunity to see the patterns on the board, so they can make better choices. And that's where this extends to any game that's not chess. If you're going to play games with really young children, you're going to need to modify the rules to make it accessible to them. If you're going to use games as a teaching tool, then, one, the kids can't understand that's what you're doing. It's not, well, we're going to study math today by playing Monopoly, or we're going to study... cause and effect by playing chess, or we're gonna study scarce resource allocation by pretending to be arachnids attempting to survive before the advent of an ice age. You don't do it in a didactic way. Say, hey kids, let's play a game. And then you help them learn to play the game well. And you have to recognize that the game by its very structure, the game designer has already determined what that balance of cooperative competitive is And certain strategies will, certain strategies will disclose themselves and encourage the development of certain types of skills or ways of thinking. Okay. So, part of what I hope we can talk about in future episodes is specific games in greater detail. What kind of skills are being developed here? Mm -hmm. Because that's not going to be obvious to to most people. It's obvious to game designers because that's how they're thinking. But game designers don't think like a lot of game players. That's why they're designing the games. They play them too, but they play them differently than casual players.
1: Okay.
0: So, uh, and then I also hope we at some point get into a couple of episodes on how to adapt specific games. Okay. Because we do. We do a lot of adaptation.
1: And it's different from the adaptation that your grandmother did. You're not throwing
0: at- a game in order to lose is not adapting. That's just rigging the game. I'm not talking about rigging the game in anybody's favor. I'm talking about adapting the the way play flows in order to help younger people keep up. Okay. And that's that's a subject of its own.
1: Okay. Well, we do hope everyone has enjoyed today's discussion. All of the games that we've mentioned today can be found in the show notes. And now we'd like to hear from you. Can you tell us about a game that you have enjoyed playing that was a cooperative game, like some of the ones we mentioned? Or was there a competitive game that you discovered inspired you to become better at it because you had a loss and rather than throwing the board and tossing the chess pieces you've decided this is the one i'm going to figure out and figure out how to beat
0: i would also like to hear from you if you have any questions about adapting games adjusting games um and particularly if they center around dealing with non-neurotypical children very very young children playing grown-up games uh, or dealing with adults looking for ways to get into playing different kinds of games.
1: So you can write to us at PlayEdPod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter at PlayEdPod. We also have a Facebook page, Played Podcast. Thank you, everybody, for your time. We look forward to um, talking again with you next time. And until then, thanks for listening.
0: Take care. Bye.